Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Circle K is America's thirst stop. And yours. Especially when the weather gets... And you need to stay... Stay refreshed on the go with ice-cold Circle K favorites like freshly ground iced coffee, Froster, Polar Pop Cup, and more. And right now at Circle K, score with monster energy drinks. Any flavor, buy two, get one free. When life's go, 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 make us your first stop. Because Circle K is America's thirst stop. Alexander, all my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here on YouTube and also on FayetteTV.org. On the phone tonight, we have Mr. Clark Ingram, a radio guru. At least that's what I like to call him. How are you doing tonight, Clark? I'm doing fine. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Bill Alexander and the hits. Oh, wait, you're not playing any music. Bill Alexander and the talk. Yeah, I do I do the old classic hits on the weekend. I don't do that during the week. So. I hear you. So, Clark, give us a little background about who you are, where you've been, and what you're doing now. Well, let's see. How many hours do you have? I got as um, many as you want to get. I, I don't think we need that many. I, uh, I was in the radio business for over 30 years. I'm pretty much retired now uh, for various reasons. But uh, I spent about half of my career in Pittsburgh at the 96KX, B94, 3WS, uh, some other stations. And uh, the rest of it spent in various markets like uh, New York, uh, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Tucson, Rochester, New York. Uh, and there's a few others in there that I'm not talking about. I did top 40 for most of my career. Did, did oldies in the later years and finished up at, uh, at KHB in the suburbs, the mighty 620, uh, doing oldies there and some other behind-the-scenes stuff. So what, what was your favorite format? I'd have to say it was top 40 at its height, but I always had a secondary uh, love of oldies, especially 60s oldies. They're kind of dropping off the dial now because the audience for 60s oldies is, well, getting older. Uh, you can still find them if you look, but it's getting harder. So, uh, But I always enjoyed doing top 40, and even when I did oldies, I was basically doing old top 40. So, same kind of thing. So, what year did you get started in radio? Uh, well, I started in college. I don't usually count that. That was uh, 76, and I got into uh, professional radio in 78, went full-time in 1980, uh, all of that at uh, 96KX in Pittsburgh, and uh, just went forward from there. Oh, okay. And then uh, always program director, or how did, when well, did you get into the programming idea? I started out as an air talent, as I think most people do, and are going to be on the air in programming. And um, then I was uh, advanced at 96KX. I became music director, and then I became assistant program director. And then they changed the format, and everybody got let go. And I went across the street, <laughs> went across the street to B94, started over again, and uh, was assistant PD and did nights for a while. And then I went to Phoenix, where I was assistant PD again, was operations manager. Finally, got my first program director job at KRQ in Tucson in 1987. I was I was about as loaded a gun as I could have been at that point. We had the we had the highest rated top 40 station in the United States in, in the top 100 markets. We had a 23 share, 12 plus. Um, hard to top that one. Uh, I was later program director of B94 for a little bit and the station in Allentown and 98PXY in Rochester, New York and came back here to what was then Jammin' Oldies and is now, I think, a country station and uh, you know, I was PD and operations manager towards the end of my career. So, of all the places you've been, which city did you like the best? Well, that's a loaded question, because there are places where I really enjoyed the radio station so much that I didn't see as much of the city as I might have. Okay. And there are, and there are other places where I saw the city, but maybe the radio station wasn't the greatest uh, situation. Um, I'd have to count my time in Arizona as being pretty darn good. Um, when I was at KZZP, 85 to 87, I got to see more of the city. When I got to Tucson, I was there from 87 to 89. 
I was busy running the radio station, and I loved the city, but I didn't spend as much time. You know, I spent more time at the radio station under those circumstances. And I've always liked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is my hometown. I spent half my career here, and uh, it's a it's a pretty city and a friendly city, and it's it's where I was born. So when you got started in the radio, did you go to school for it, or did you just get out of high school and just start? I went to uh, Point Park College. It was okay. still a college back then before it was university. I went for a couple of years and uh, spent a lot of time at the college radio station. Eventually, I was program director there. And then in the fall of 1978, I got hired at 96KX, uh, which is now uh, 96.1 KISS. Uh, that was part-time, and I did it for about a year and a half. And then in 1980, I went full-time at 6 to 10 at night. So, in other words, you just went two years of school and didn't finish your degree? No, I didn't finish. I was uh, running out of money anyway, and I had the uh, job offer at uh, at KX, and I figured that would hopefully bloom into something else, which it did. And I was living at home at that point, so uh, I just I just jumped into radio and uh, didn't look back from there. Now, do you recommend in 2018 that students actually get a four year or a two year degree, or start the way you did? I would say, well, maybe get started while you're in college, but if I had to do it over again, I'd probably finish. Uh, that didn't come back to bite me or anything, but it would be nice to have the degree to fall back on. Right. Because you know, radio is a more tenuous business these days. There are fewer people uh, doing more work, and people seem to get uh, fired for no reason because they just want to reorganize or cut the budget or whatever. So you, you don't have the kind of guarantees you did uh, when I got in like 30 years ago. Because what, so, what frustrated me is because I went to college, I started in 84, got my degree in communications, radio and TV in 88. So I got the four-year degree, but when I started working in the uh, in the industry, I'm thinking, why did I spend four years of my time in college when I could have just started immediately when I got out of high school? Well, here's the uh, here's the the unvarnished truth: the the degree may not help you in radio, but it may help you after. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's something to fall back on. And if you you know, I know a lot of people have gotten out of radio or been pushed out of radio, whatever, and they've gone into different fields of work that they have a degree in or something communications related. And there, the degree helps you. In radio, generally speaking, it doesn't, unless it's a business degree and you're in the you know the uh, the business side of the. That, the that's the true. That's true. So with the, with the way you see radio today compared to when you started. Where do you think it's going from here? That's a darn good question, and there's a whole lot of aspects to that. Um, uh, radio is much more corporate now. There's fewer smaller owners and fewer smaller stations, and there are fewer people employed in the radio business. At least it seems that way. At least fewer people per station. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next, I don't know, five to ten years with AM radio. You know, the FCC has got an initiative which is supposed to revitalize AM radio. Uh, so far, I don't see that happening. What's happening is the AM stations, which are, which are dying off slowly, a lot of them, uh, are getting FM translators, FM repeaters. And what, what is happening at a lot of these stations is that when they get the FM translator, which is only allowed 250 watts at a certain number of feet, depending on you know who they're interfering with or not, um, the AM owner will basically kill the AM format, take the FM translator, make that the format, and the AM then just repeats the FM and is kind of thrown away. Um, that's not always true. It's not necessarily true here in Pittsburgh, but it's true in a lot of other markets. The other problem with translators is that they don't generally cover the entire market. Pittsburgh's a tough one because this is a six-county metropolitan area, and you have a lot of hills. The terrain is rough. So you get a translator that's downtown, running 250 watts and however many feet, and it's hard to get it, you know, more than, uh, you know, five, six miles out of town. If you're in a small town or if you're in an area that's flat, like if you're in the middle of Ohio or something, that's different. But in a big market like Pittsburgh, uh, what you basically, with these FM translators, is getting, you're getting more FM stations that don't have the coverage, and they're gonna, that, that's going to be a tough situation competitively. So. We, have, we have a translator down here for a local AM. 101.1. No. <laughs> well, yes, you're right. 101.1 for uh, 590 AM. But the thing right. is, the FM actually lays over top of the same area the AM does. Well, but the thing is, more people are listening to FM than AM, and that's been true for a while now. And the, the AM percentage, unfortunately, keeps decreasing. And part of that is the technology, but also part of that is, you know, you get... 
you get out of AM radio what you put in. In fact, you probably have to put in twice as much effort to get half the result, if not worse than that. But if you don't put anything on that people don't want to hear, you're not going to. They're not going to listen. Uh, we had the. You're familiar with WZUM up here, which for three years was yes. basically a rhythmic oldie station. It was uh, the sole sole sound of Pittsburgh, and it it did it didn't really make a lot of money because uh, I wasn't a salesperson and neither were the owners. But uh, it had listeners and it had a following, and it could have kept going. But they they sold the station for about five times what they paid for it, so more power to them. Uh, so if you put something on AM radio, people will listen, especially if they can't get it on FM. That's the the, the key. I think is to be different, but not so different that people aren't going to listen to it. Right. But, but at any rate, so but in the case of you know your local station there, the uh, the 590 goes further, really, but the 101.1 probably attracts more listeners. And they're actually uh, putting the AM on the FM. They didn't change it. It stayed the same. And that's good. That's the way. That, that's what I think they ought to do at first. But a lot of stations, if the AM is is moribund, if it's not doing well, they'll just kill off whatever format's on the AM and program it like it's an FM and let the AM simulcast, which is, I don't necessarily think that's the best idea, because again, unless you're in a place like Uniontown, or someplace that can be covered with a translator, which, you know, Pittsburgh is a tough market to do that, right. it's going to be hard for you to compete, you know, especially if you've got iHeart or whatever company over across the street with six radio stations, and you've got an AM station with a translator, it's a tough ball of wax in a big market. In my opinion, it's a tough ball of wax. So, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I mentioned 101.1 is the frequency there in Uniontown, and here's, here's the situation. You have uh, WZUM here, which is now doing jazz. Right. They have a 101.1 translator, which covers the city proper pretty well. You have one of Tony Renda's stations in Indiana, PA, has a 101.1 translator, and of course Uniontown has a 101.1 translator, and you have WHOT in Youngstown on 101.1, so that signal can be a real mess depending on where you are. Uh, and that's, again, that's the problem of coverage and the problem of being competitive. There, uh, there cover- is a location, actually, where I'm at, because I'm located in Brownsville. If I hit the hill right going out of town, I get WZUM, and I lose 590 out of Uniontown. Yeah, well, they're shoehorning more and more signals in, and the danger is it'll end up being like the AM band has been, which is, you know, too many stations and too much interference, and it becomes hard then to be profitable if you've got too many signals. Uh, I live about three miles from the 100.1 translator up here, and I can't get it. Uh, I get stationed in Morgantown. Okay. Uh, and that's a, that's a challenge. There's really only one or two of those translators that I get decently, and I'm, I grant you I'm in a hole, and I have a southern exposure. I get, uh, you know, I get everything from the south. But uh, it's if you can't get the station, it's going to be a challenge. And these these minor FM signals are in trouble. Even the Class A's are having trouble. The three thousand watts, you know, against the fifty thousand watt stations. So what's two hundred fifty watts going to do? Right. Uh, that, now that's just one. That's just one of the things that I think is going on in broadcasting. The other thing is. Uh, there are fewer and fewer people, and it seems like uh, everybody looking at the results of things like the the, the people meter. There, it's it's basically radio stations are shutting up. They're not allowing a whole lot of personality, and that's fine if you want a jukebox. But I can put a better jukebox together on my computer to listen to than anything I can find on the radio. And unless there's something there, there's some kind of human connection, some kind, something compelling to listen to, somebody being a personality, being an entertainer, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me, at least. And, of course, I did radio for 30 years, and I did it in a different era than we have now. But uh, I think that human connection, that human communication is what sets radio apart from your iPod. And I don't hear a lot of stations doing it. Maybe in the morning they do, but it gets pretty quiet after that. Do you think the Internet's actually going to start taking away from the uh, audience of an FM station? I think it is already. And you have a lot of people listening on streams or listening to the HD2 or HD3 channels on the stream. Um, That's starting to happen. And again, I think as you find stations that uh, stations that you can't hear, unless you listen to the stream, that, that's going to happen more and more. Plus, you have lots of choices online for radio stations. I have a bunch of them bookmarked. Uh, not Pittsburgh stations, but stations in other markets that right. I, I'm interested in. There's a station in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I had posted about it on Facebook, uh, WFLI, which uh, is an AM station. It's a AM station with an FM translator, but the AM is the big signal. It's 50,000 watts in the daytime. And they are basically resurrecting this old Top 40 station, and it sounds like, uh, in a good way, it sounds like, I don't know, 1978. I can't say I've ever heard a station play, you got that right by Leonard Skinnerd, and I want a hippopotamus for Christmas in the same (laughs) 
15 minutes, but I'm like about three songs apart. Um, I can't predict what they're going to do. Now, if I were doing a format, I wouldn't necessarily do that, but they're resurrecting a station from the dead. It had been playing gospel for about 10 years, and then it went dark. Actually, longer than 10 years. So they're, they're trying to bring back this legend, and they've got a top 40 uh, Hall of Fame and museum in the building, and they conduct tours, and they hold events there. And I think they're doing it with a lot of love. Whether it's going to succeed, uh, they get commercials, so hopefully it will. Uh, but I'm happy to see them trying, and their emphasis is pretty much on the AM. They're not trying to take the FM and make it a new format. They're trying to resurrect what the AM used to be. And it's interesting. Uh, and they have live disc jockeys at least a couple of times during the day. I think mornings and afternoons at the very least, and uh, voice tracking the rest of the time. But uh, the people they have on the air are people who have been in the market. They, they have name recognition. They worked at the station in the 60s or 70s. And the, I don't know. I'm mildly impressed by what they're Where doing. Do they're trying. I give here. them credit for trying, even if it doesn't work as well as they hope. Right. So I, I was just curious because one thing that, I mean, whenever the whole Internet thing started, we always said it was going to be hard to monetize because the businesses in the area, especially local ones, didn't understand why people outside the area would actually want to do business with them. And they do have a valid point. However, if you're able to, if you're able to monetize it, not only on a local level, but on a regional or a national level, you actually have something that might be successful. I think so. Uh, it is a challenge if you're, let's just, you know, if you're in Uniontown and you're, let's say, Fair Chance Pharmacy, uh, it's not going to do you any good if you have listeners in Germany on the stream. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the Internet is coming around and it's certainly getting monetized. Uh, YouTube seems to be monetizing everything. Uh, and I do mean everything. Yes. Uh, but the commercials are getting shorter. Uh, they're five and six seconds and sometimes ten seconds and fifteen. I've reached the point with the 30-second commercials, I just click skip the ad because I'm, I'm impatient. So the attention span, we're going to have blipverts. Remember blipverts from the, uh, the Max Headroom show? We're going to have yes. those before you know it. Uh, before you know it, that's going to happen. Uh, so I think the Internet, oh, I, I'd have to see the study to see what, time people spend on the internet versus what time they spend with radio. Right. But there's more, in, there's more engagement, I think, on the internet. And there's more to do. And uh, I can sit here and listen to a radio station on the stream, and if I hear something I don't know, I can look it up and find out what it is and uh, check the chart history or whatever, if I'm interested in doing that. So there's a lot of information there. And it's, eh, you know, it's, it's easier. And it's uh, also, I have more choices. I have stations all over the country I can listen to if I want to. So I think the choice, again, there's a movement about, and it's starting to happen, where you get internet radio in your car, you know, wireless, basically wireless broadband internet on your car radio. Uh, that's only happening in some places, but it's going to continue to, you know, with all these 3G and 4G and 5G networks, you know, it's going to happen. And when you can get in your car and listen to, I don't know, Scott Shannon on WCBS-FM in New York City, that becomes a competitor to your local station, and the local station may or may not live up to the competition. So... Well, especially uh, when there's money out there that's able to back the competitor of, uh, of the online station. Right. Well, and the other thing is, uh, one of the other things that radio has always done well has been local. And unfortunately, radio is not as local as it used to be. You've got stations being voice tracked from other markets and calling in uh, traffic reports from other markets because that's where the talent is. And uh, I guess you can serve the market that way. But uh, I, I really like a live human being behind the microphone. Uh, that's less and less the reality, and I accept that. But uh, if radio is going to survive, other than the big corporate owners, it's going to be the uh, the smaller owners with the real life people serving the community. And you know, your local station in Uniontown has been that way. And uh, there's there's others. There's plenty of others. They're mostly in smaller markets or maybe some medium markets. But uh, that's that I think is what radio is going to have to do if it wants to differentiate itself and not get lost in the slew of internet streams and, and uh, automated voice track, whatever. The, the uh, station in Washington, WJPA, has been doing it that way for years, and they actually do it very successfully, too. They've always been a good little station, and they make money, and they have live people. And, uh, you know, in Washington, PA, I think that's the right way to go. If they were just another automated station, uh, the Pittsburgh stations would be killing them. Well, and, so, and the other thing about it, too, is they know that they're not competing against anybody. Because right. everybody wants to compete against the stations in Pittsburgh, and it doesn't make sense to me if that's not where your audience is at. 
Well, and at some point you have to say, you know, you got you to gotta stick with the girl that brought you to the dance, you know, the girl you brought to the dance. Because Washington, PA is a market unto itself and has grown quite a bit. You know, it's a big bedroom community for Pittsburgh now. Right. And, and the Pittsburgh stations do get in there. So if you're going to serve Washington, you'd better serve Washington and be local and run the, 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 the sports teams at night on the AM or whatever. And that, that's what you got to do. And they, as far as I can tell, they make money. They do what they do pretty well. Uh, and then you're right. They're not competing with the Pittsburgh stations. Not in the big, not in the big picture. I guess the Pittsburgh stations get in there. But if you live in Washington and you're interested in Washington, what's happening in the county, you listen to WJPA. Right. And that's the way it ought to be, just like uh, WMBS does in Uniontown and other stations that do, do that in their various markets. Do, do you think it's doing a disservice for the small stations that they are classified in the Pittsburgh market? Well, if they know how to monetize it and make money uh, by serving a part of that market, no, I don't think it's a disadvantage. Um, you know, WJPA recognizes their market is Washington County, and their listeners are in Washington County, and they serve Washington County. Right. Uh, ditto for WMBS with Fayette, uh, and there's other stations I could point to. I think that's their advantage. Uh, yeah, the Pittsburgh stations get in there, and the Pittsburgh stations certainly have listenership. But as long as they can survive and make money and get listeners, then that's not a problem. Uh, I once said to somebody that I was working for, that you know, as long as people, as long as people show up to your remote broadcast and buy the products your advertisers advertise, it doesn't matter if you have ratings or not. I think it's important to have <laughs> listeners. But you know, these guys, you know, WJPA is not going to shell out to buy the ratings because it's too expensive. Right. But as long as they go out and do some car dealer broadcast and people show up and a couple of people buy cars, they're in good shape. And that you can just extrapolate that across the field of uh, you know advertising. Uh, what's really important is getting a response. And radio, of course, is a dual business. It serves the listeners, but it also serves the clients. If you don't have any clients, you're going to go out of business. So you have to make money, and that's a reality. And as long as you get response from your listeners and you have enough listeners to get the response, then that's not going to be a problem. Uh, I think local is the answer in that case. Certainly in the cases of the Washingtons and the Union Towns and the Butlers of the world, that's, that's what you got to do, especially with Pittsburgh right next door. And that, that was the one thing that always interests me is that um, when I started working at these small stations, for some reason, they were so focused on Pittsburgh when they should have been focusing on their local market. I mean, a great example of that was WASP out of Brownsville, because they were more worried about Pittsburgh than they were about Washington, Fayette, and the Mon Valley. And that was a nice little signal for the for AM 1130. And again, they got the FM, which they were that became the jewel in the crown of uh, Hume's broadcasting. And unfortunately, they let the AM go away, which was a mistake. And then they sold out, of course, to Key Market, and then everybody sold out to Key Market. But it, and, then, and then Key Market started taking their AM stations off the air. Right, which I think uh, was a big mistake. Again, I think you, AM radio is a tough haul these days. There's no question about it. But you get in, you get out of AM radio what you put into it. Right. If you put on, if you put on some some satellite format that nobody really cares about, and it's all automated, and there's nothing really local. It's just a machine going around. Well, you're going to get about what you expect. On the other hand, if you have local people in there, even if they're just voice tracking and recording it, and it's, and it's hyper local. I know stations that do hyper local. It's all pre-recorded, but it's there, uh, and the content is there. And as long as that's the case, you know, I think somebody's going to listen. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. As I said, next five, ten years are going to spell the, the what's going to happen to AM radio. And so, I don't know the answer. I, th I think AM radio is a fading technology, and I, but I'd, I'd like to see it survive as long as possible. Because when we lose AM radio, we're going to lose some diversity in, uh, in broadcast. Uh, I think at some point... This is just my guess. I think at some point the FCC will say, okay, you can uh, sign off the AM station and keep the FM translator. And that will be fine if they would raise the power. If, if every AM station got, let's say, a Class A FM, 3,000 watts or whatever, mm -hmm. that, would be, that would be more competitive. I don't know if they can do that, technically speaking. Uh, receivers are better now than when they first uh, put all those allocations down for FM stations. So they could get away with some of it. Uh, I don't think 250 watts at 100 feet is going to cover it, uh, except in the, the, the smaller markets. In the Union Towns, sure. Uh, but in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that's not really an option. And if you're in a big market like there, there's lots of translators in Philadelphia, none of which cover the market. In fact, the market is so big that there are translators on the same frequency at either end of the market. And it must be fun when you get in the middle, you know. But that, that, that would be interesting, actually. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, I think there will be more evolution of the of the policies, you know. And I think there will be there will be probably be more FM signals and less AM signals. So what? A few you, less, 
What are your thoughts about these these organizations buying all these stations, operating it out of one building with three or four employees? And basically, every station sounds the same. Yeah, if they all sound the same, again, you have the homogenization of radio. And uh, it's one thing if you have a station in Toledo that sounds like a station in Pittsburgh because nobody's probably listening to both of them at once unless they're listening on the stream. And from a revenue standpoint, that doesn't make a lot of difference. So that, that, I understand that. So that's why you have so many stations called KISS that have Ryan Seacrest in middays. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. But uh, when, you put, when you put eight stations, there's a good friend of mine running eight stations, and he's losing his mind. Because <laughs> you just can't, you just can't, it's hard for, it's hard for, there's like one person, and there's another fellow part-time, and it's like, it's very hard to run eight radio stations at once, even if they're automated, even if, you know, uh, they, they somewhat run themselves. It's still very hard. I always used to feel as a program director, you can only have a romance with one station at one time. Right. Uh, it's like, it's like uh, dating a woman. You have to give her all your attention. You don't <laughs> date three or four women at the same time. I really believe that. Now, the, the, the industry has changed, let's uh-huh. be fair. But at the same time, it's, you know, I, I reached the point in Rochester, New York, where I was ops manager, and I had three stations. And even then, I wasn't running all three stations completely. I was running the top 40 station. I was overseeing the uh, the AC station, which had a program director of its own. Okay. And then there, was, then there was a little classic rocker in the suburbs, which basically my job was to keep an ear on it and make sure it was doing what it was supposed to do. <laughs> and there was a music director, and it was uh, fully automated, so it didn't require a whole lot of it. And even then, even then, trying to do three stations at once, uh, you know, you got you to gotta play Solomon and figure out, you know, when the... I remember one particular case where the Rod Stewart tickets came in, and I had to divvy them up between the top 40 station and the adult contemporary station. And so we sorted out something where the AC station would give them away during the week, and the top 40 would give them away on the weekend, and we didn't overlap, and, you know, so we both got a piece of that. But you had to kind of play Solomon there, uh, making decisions uh, on things like that. So it's, it's, it's hard to do that with more than one station. Now, that's the norm these days, is that everybody's got four stations or six stations, it seems, and there is more and more work but for one person uh, running six stations or eight stations at once, and it's just not easy to do, and I think inevitably something suffers. Inevitably, you can't, you can't do it all the time, and as there's less and less people, uh, the quality suffers somewhere. Uh, and I can hear it. I can hear it when things are sloppy, or I can hear it when, you know, when there's three minutes of dead air where a song ought to be. Right. Uh, that kind of thing. And it happens. Uh, there's going to be mistakes anyway, but uh, I think the, the fewer people you have, the less people you have to pay attention to stuff like that. What? So... I don't know. I don't believe in. I don't believe in homogenized radio. I think stations ought to be distinct. They ought to be different. Uh, they ought to be tuned to their market. They shouldn't play stiffs or anything. But they should be. They should be distinct, and they should sound. Again, I'm, I'm thinking back to WFLI here, and who knows if they have ratings because they don't subscribe. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're doing something different. They've got my attention, and I'm listening on the stream. I don't know what the people in Chattanooga think, uh, but I'm kind of enjoying it. <laughs> well, what what frustrates me about the whole thing is is that these stations that you know are computerized. Yes. And they're doing local drop-ins, and they're not being done at a regular time. The weather forecast is coming in. It's something that you're not familiar with. Or the woman who's reading the weather forecast can't say the local name of a a community. They can't pronounce smock, which drives me crazy. Oh, there's a big, uh, especially in Pittsburgh, where you have North for sales and not North for Versailles. Carnegie instead of Carnegie, mm-hmm. uh, that can be a problem. You get somebody in Philadelphia or some other market that's uh, you know voice tracking in the weather forecast and they get things wrong. Um, that's that's real obvious, and I hear it. I don't hear it as much as I used to, but it still can be a problem. And when there's dead air, or loose air, as I call it, where you know they're doing voice tracks and it's trying to sound live, but it doesn't quite sound live. Uh, that that and again, I'm listening as a former program director, not necessarily as a casual listener. So I right. noticed that thing before the average listener would. But I don't, I don't like it. It bothers me. When I know a station's voice tracked and I've figured it out, I kind of go, well, fine, he's not there. Let's try something else. <laughs> right. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm an old school guy, so I'm thinking that way. I realize radio's a different business now than it was in 1978 when I got in. But uh, I really believe that the when a station has somebody good on the air and they're live and they're allowed to do what they're allowed to do, uh, I, think it, uh, I think it outshines the voice tracking by a considerable uh, margin. Yeah, it, it just frustrates me because there's stations in this area that are voice tracking and there's a lot of good people out there that would be more than willing to go in and do it, not on a full-time basis, but on part-time basis, but they don't want to pay them because it's not in the bottom line. And my thought is, if you're not making the advertising dollar, why do you own the station? Well, the, you know... <laughs> 
radio stations, and I can't, in a way, I can't blame them for this, but I could, I could go off on a rant on unrestrained capitalism, but I'm not going to do that. It, it's, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, I don't believe greed is good uh, myself. I think it's good to be, it's good to be a capitalist, but it's also good to have people uh, in your building. Right. And uh, the thing is, I guess companies are going to try to run radio stations as cheaply as possible without impacting the product, but it does impact the product. Uh, and somebody in corporate says you have to yank, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars out of the budget and they go in and they cut somebody that's right. really important and they shouldn't do that. Uh, but they're going to do that, especially these companies have taken on a lot of debt and, you know, iHeart and uh, Cumulus and some other companies have been trying to re refinance and rearrange their debt uh, so that it's not as bad as it is. But, uh, you know, when the bankers, you know, when your lenders pull your chain and say you have to cut this out of the budget, you basically don't have much of a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I don't I don't entirely blame the owners. I guess I blame them for getting themselves into debt that much, you know, where they owe $20 billion or whatever it is. Uh, but in the end, in the end, radio boils down to what it does to the local community, you know, what it does for the listeners, what it does for the community. And, uh, you know, the less local it gets, the more trouble I think it's in eventually. Uh, no. So I don't know. I, I like, I'd prefer more people to less people, but I understand stations do what they have to do or feel or believe they have to do. Well, you make the comment about local. And I've been saying that I've been saying that for years that it needs to go back to the local roots again because that, for a lot of cases, that was the community's identity was their local radio station. Unfortunately, the stations were either bought up or they were shut down, and they don't have the local identity. But the stations that do come in or they've been bought out, they run by satellite, and there's nothing local about the station. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you have a station, well, like, like UWMBS, they're in Uniontown. And they've, they've changed some things, and they've added some infomercials and whatnot to hear more paid programming. But they're, they're still, they haven't changed too much. They're still doing more or less what they've done all oh, along yeah. with, with some changes. WJPA, the same way. They're doing what they've been doing for the last 20 years, at least, maybe 30. And, you know, the, the stations that are smart, I think, in those, in those areas will keep doing that. Uh, in a market like Pittsburgh, it's different. Uh, but even then, the best stations, you know, the DVEs of the world, you know, they're local, they still have their content, and they identify with the city. Right. Uh, the ones that are voice-tracked, eh, not so much. That's my opinion. But, um, again, people people mostly listen for the music even to this day, but the problem is there's so many more music choices. Radio is radio is still one of the primary music choices of the public, but it's not the only choice. You know, you can... I remember when I was in Rochester, New York, this is almost 20 years ago now, and all this Napster file sharing was starting. And I said to myself and to some other people I was having a discussion with, the days of listeners sitting around to hear their favorite song is just about over. Because they, right. they can go get it now. They can get it on YouTube. They can get it on file sharing. They can get it on uh, Spotify. Uh, anything else you want to throw in there. So that, that aspect of radio, you know, radio is not as much of a Pied Piper as it used to be. People still use it for music. But radio, as I've said in the past, is not mass customizable. You get what comes out of those speakers, you know, and that's what you get. Right. Uh, and you can't change it. Uh, it's not under your control. It's, I mean, you can change the station, but the music is not under your control. It's under the control of whoever's programming it. And stations are trying to compensate for that. They're doing the HD2 or HD3 channels and putting different formats on there. Uh, and that's an interesting idea, but again, it's still not mass customizable. It's just more variety. Uh, so if I want to set up a playlist, I can do it in YouTube or do it in one of these music services in about a minute. <laughs> and I can, the thing is, in, under those circumstances, you don't ever have to listen to a song you don't like, ever. Right. Period. You know, you can just cut them out and play just the songs you like. And that's a hard thing to compete with, because sooner or later, radio is going to hit a song you don't want to hear. Yes. Uh, you know, the public may like it, but you may personally may not. So it's, it's, a, it's a competitive challenge. And radio is still, it's still healthy. It's still got an awful lot of listenership. It doesn't have the kind of time spent listening that it did, you know, 30 years ago. But it's still there, and it can still serve the public, and I hope it does. And I hope it just doesn't turn into a bunch of little boxes all going around by themselves. Well, the other thing with radio, too, is, is that I think it's still going to, it's still going to have a uh, purpose as long as we're still driving because yes. it's the easiest access to get while you're driving. You don't have to download it. You don't have to see if you have Wi-Fi or you're using your data. It's there. Yes, that is the last big domain of, of, of radio is in the car. But again, people are already starting to plug in their phones and listen right. to music off their phones or their iPods. And when they listen to Sirius XM, which is radio, but it's not local per se, 
And, you know, eventually that wireless broadband internet will be available on every car radio. And you can listen to whatever you want, wherever you want, whatever you want. And, I, and that's good. the thing that frustrates me about satellite radio is Sirius XM. And I listen, and I listen a lot. And I have a subscription to it and everything else. But I start hearing repetition. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. They're playing this, and they're doing it in the same order. Which drives me crazy because if I can predict the next two songs, I change it. Because there's a certain yeah, there's a certain value to how can I say this? I always said radio should be consistent, but not predictable. Right. You want to know you want to know what you're going to get. You don't necessarily want to know the order in which you're going to get it. Um, and that's you know I, again, if they're repeating the same songs in the same order, and that's uh, somebody's not paying attention. You got to shuffle it up better than that. Uh, I, I mean, I don't have any problem. I don't have Sirius XM, so when I hear it, it's like when they have the free days or whatever, and I like right. a little bit. Uh, and sometimes it's not bad, but they, too, are becoming increasingly voice-tracked. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it was interesting. It was more interesting. Maybe I'm just getting used to it, but it was more interesting before than it is now, in my humble opinion. Well, I think it was uh, more interesting when you had a, the two uh, services competing against each other with XM on one and Sirius on the other. I think when they, they merged is when it just became homogenous, and it just, there's no creativity to it whatsoever. I do think they were better when they're competing. Maybe there wasn't room for two satellite companies in radio. I don't know. But, uh, it's yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I understand. I think, in general, radio has become a little more homogenous, and uh, that frustrates me. Uh, but it's, it, it is what it is. If, the path, if there's a path forward, I don't think it's being homogenous. Oh, I agree. And being local local and interesting and and compelling. And I think the Internet, if someone could figure out how to do it um, in a way that is going to make it, uh, let's see, uh, more of a, a, uh, (laughs) I lost my words, Uh, but to make it a way that people are going to be able to choose what they want to hear and deliver it in a way that's going to be easy and not difficult. Even even if you go in and you just download what you want, you still have to do something. Yeah. And it's not predicting what you want or listening to a stream. You're listening to uh, the station out of Tennessee. I produce a show for a station out of McKeesport. But the thing is, I don't know how many people are listening to me unless I actually go out and figure that out because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get advertising dollars to sustain the program or give me some type of revenue to be able to sustain it. So again, it's just being able to get that, get it there and figure a way to do it that is going to, to fit the old radio market but use it in a new, uh, the new technology. One of the challenges with internet radio is that basically... With a fairly minimal investment, anybody can be a broadcaster. Right. You know, you get you get some equipment, you set it up, and you do a talk show, or you do a music station, and you pay your royalties to the you know, the broadcast music companies, whatever, and you can put it on the internet and you stream and you host, and, and there you are. Uh, the challenge to that is there are so many things to listen to. I said to somebody one day, I don't want to be the the one millionth person with an online radio station that nobody listens to, mm-hmm. uh, or I'd put one on. But you know, and I, I I did radio for thirty years. That might be enough. But but, uh, and I'm interested in it, but I thought to myself that it's, the return on investment might not be there. Right. But uh, but you know, but you can so you can choose you can choose from a million stations, not just in the United States, but around the world. If I want to sit here and listen to radio out of Moscow, I you know I can do it, uh, and it's it's fascinating to me to be able to do that to listen to all these stations that are streaming. But you have an, an over almost an overabundance of choices. Uh, there's a point where you have so many choices that nobody gets any listeners. Uh, it's what I used to call you know I, as I said I had over a 20 share in Tucson, Arizona. I don't think anybody has a 20 share today. Um, in a lot of the big markets, you know, the top station has a five share. And it's it's just tough, I think, to, to monetize that successfully. You have a lot of cum, but you don't have the time spent listening. And nobody dominates the markets the way that they used to. Even DVE, which was dominant for so many years, is, is now number two in the market. Right. So it's, it's a challenge. I think it's a little bit of a challenge. And radio, is again, does not have the time spent listening that it used to. 
So, I don't know. Uh, it's what the future model will be. I think we're still finding that out as we go along. And as devices, as devices get smaller and faster and the 5G networks ramp up and whatever else, we're going to see, you know, technology continues to advance and everybody's got a smartphone and people listen to stuff on their phones and they do things on their phones like they used to do with computers. So the technology continues to advance. What radio's role in that is going to be and whether they will co-opt the technology or the technology will co-opt them. <laughs> and what will happen to good old terrestrial tuning in radio uh, is, is still up in the air. Because I know when I started doing this online in 2006, there weren't very many of us doing it. And I, mean, I had a decent audience. For about four and a half years, I had a decent audience. And then my life got in the way and then uh, everything else. And then all of a sudden, a friend of yours and mine, Eric O'Brien, and I started talking. And he was doing stuff. And I'm going, wait a minute. If Eric can do it this way, I can do it this way, too. And I enjoy doing it, if anybody's watching or not, because I love talking to people, especially people like you. And I'll be doing Sally Wigan next week and and uh, Jeff Rosella here in the near future. But a lot of it is just done for me that I'm able to share it with other people. And uh, luckily for me, I also have an outlet that uh, we're now filming this so I can actually air it on local cable TV so people can watch it there. So I'm killing two birds with one stone, actually maybe three birds with one stone, but it still gives me that outlet to be able to do it because in my mind, this is still what I enjoy doing. Even right. though I do teach Monday through Friday, I'd rather do this than sit and stand in front of a room of 20 students for eight hours a day. Well, it's, it's not unlike what I did at the end uh, at KHB, which was the last station I was on the air at. And I did a weekend oldie show that, as I always say, was sandwiched between the polka shows and the rosary. Uh, it's just, a, just, just an open open swatch of time. Uh, we weren't really doing a format there. It was a specialty show. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did, it, I did it for several reasons. I did it because I enjoyed it, and I did it because it gave me a chance to get in front of the public, although it wasn't a huge, huge listen-to show. The people that found it really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it. And uh, uh, I know one of the local stations was, uh, was voice-tracked at that time, and I listened to them, and I listened to my show, and I said, well, if, they're, if I'm jocking my heart out for a couple hours here, what's their excuse? Because uh, they were voice-tracked, and it was dull. And I said, I'm going to be anything but dull for the next couple of hours. Right. Uh, every week. And that's what I did, and I did that about as long as I could do it. And uh, it was fun, and I enjoyed it, and it wasn't hugely listened to, and it wasn't sponsored. It was just my two hours of time in between, again, the poker shows and the rosary. Uh, but I had fun with it and enjoyed it, and, and I think the audience enjoyed it, too, and that's what counted. So I, a couple of weeks ago, you posted on Facebook that you're thinking about doing something again. What are you thinking about doing? I really don't know. I'm just... I was working on a couple of things, and of course, not, not everybody reads my Facebook page, but I was working on some, some playlists for old radio stations and whatnot, and that turned into a retrospective of my time at 96KX, and I just thought to myself, maybe I should be doing this again. Uh, I'm still pondering the issue. I'm not sure that the barriers to entry aren't too high for me, because okay. I've got health issues, health issues, and the, 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 whole, the whole business of the radio industry having changed, and I've changed at the same time. So I don't know yet. Whatever I need to do would have to be done from this house. Right. And how profitable and or successful that could be, I couldn't tell you. But I'm pondering. I'm pondering it. And we'll see. We'll see as we go forward. Just a thought. Just an idle thought. Just a thought I had in a taxi cab waiting there at the curb. And, and I mean, honestly, it would be great to have you back again in some way, shape or form, because you still have one of the most recognizable voices in this region. Well, thank you. Well, I always like to say I still have my brains. I still have my voice. That's about all I got. That's what I got. That's mostly. That's most of what I got. And and I I, I miss radio. I don't miss it as much as I used to. And, but I I do miss it. And there's times where I think I could be doing that. Uh, I hear somebody doing something. I say, gee, that would be kind of fun to be a part of. So I'm at least, I'm at least entertaining the notion. And we'll see what 2019 brings. Uh, the Lord has been full of surprises these past couple of years. So we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens from here. Because I I just know that. Uh, it would be nice. I mean, if you had your own home studio and actually did it from your home, that would be actually kind of cool. Yeah, that would be the only way it could be done, really, because I'm not as mobile as I used to. Okay, okay. So we'll see about that. But again, I'm 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 churning it around. I'm roasting it and flipping it over and seeing what I come up with. So I, I've been looking at your Facebook page, like I said, over the last few weeks, 
and I'm I'm noticing you're getting a tad bit political, or is it just your opinion? Well, it's just opinions, and uh, Facebook, as I said, most of your listeners don't read my Facebook page, and I wouldn't expect them to. Facebook, to me, is basically where I'm doing my show right now. Right. Uh, I, I get up, I make a statement, I sit down. I don't really have a, much of a conversation unless somebody reacts to something I post. I'm not much for these direct messages back and forth, because a lot of people are like, hey, did you see this cute little thing? And I'm like, no, I don't want to be bothered with that. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, 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 when I have something to say, I say it. And sometimes that includes politics. Uh, I, I tend to lean conservative, uh, but I have a liberal streak on some issues. And every now and again, I'll just see something. And it's funny because I was offered a job in talk radio. Uh, again, this would be about 20 years ago okay. when, I got, when I got out of top 40. I didn't take the job. I didn't feel it then. I feel it now, but it's a little late. Uh, oh, so, it's never too late. Well, no, well at any rate, uh, I, I, I didn't feel like I could do talk radio in 99, and now I feel like I probably could. But uh, whether anybody would be interested in my opinions or whether I'd be controversial enough to have a talk show right. is a good question, because you really have to be pretty solid on one side of the coin or other in order to succeed, and you have to say controversial things, I think, uh, for some reason. The, the days of Perry Marshall's talk radio are pretty much over. And I don't know if I could do that kind of controversy. And, you know, they say you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. I don't really know if I'd want the heat for something like that, because it's just my opinion after all. Right. Nothing, I, nothing I say is going to change uh, political policy in Washington, D.C. But every now and again, I see something where I have an opinion, and I post about it. And people can love it or hate it or disagree with it, whatever. But it's, it's my opinion, and I don't claim for it to be anything else. And then the rest of my Facebook page is uh, posting assorted old music things. I, basically, I said my Facebook page is this. I find things, I share them, I comment on them. And then I sit down. Um, so anybody that finds that, it's a very odd collection of, you know, uh, music and uh, virtual road tripping and some radio stuff and the occasional word of Christian exhortation. And uh, anybody that sits with me, uh, God bless them. <laughs> I, I, the, the, what I'm really enjoying is your, as you said, the, uh, the road trip of the uh, the old communities like the one I'm looking in Tecumseh, Nebraska. Yeah, and, Tecumseh, uh, Nebraska was the uh, was the uh, filming site for a, an obscure, well, it's obscure now, but it wasn't then. A miniseries on ABC called America, which was based on the uh, the premise that the Russians had somehow conquered the United States, and they filmed a lot of it in Tecumseh, Nebraska. And I got on Google Street View, went looking for Tecumseh, Nebraska, and uh, took some screenshots and put them up there. And that's easy to do, and that's fun because I can be anywhere in about five seconds. Right. Uh, I don't have to drive to Nebraska to do it. So that's enjoyable to me, and I'm going places where I never, I, I drove, used to drive around the country at 50,000 miles a year. Uh, I don't do that anymore, but I can go there on Google Street View and be there in a second and basically do the same thing. I can even put up the local radio station and stream it and drive, quote unquote, drive down the road and feel like I'm there. It gives the uncanny feeling that you have been there, even though you haven't. Right. But it's fun. And so I see the country that way. I did a whole thing on Man Montana the other week, which you probably saw. Yes, I did. And, and, and that's enjoyable. I, uh, my entire time in Montana, in person, consists of a, oh, a few minutes driving through West Yellowstone to get to Yellowstone. And now I'm seeing more of it. And it's interesting. It's, it's, I'm learning things. I've probably traveled more virtually than I ever did in my car. And, and, the, and the whole idea of, of putting the old radio stations and the buildings up and the communities, the oddities that you've been finding, um, is, is actually very educational. Well, when you get to a smaller market, when you get to a, a Kalis Bell, Montana, which I was in the other day on, on Google, uh, the local radio stations take on more importance because these communities are smaller, they're more isolated, they're generally rural, and their local radio serves a big purpose there. It serves a bigger purpose than, you know, let's play another 10 in a row. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy listening to the local stations that are trying to do something. Uh, and by, by their very nature, they're more local and they're uh, different. They, they're more individualized. So it's interesting. To, when I discover a small market station that's doing that kind of thing, I really enjoy it. Uh, even though what they're talking about in Montana or Chattanooga or whatever may not be that relevant to the life I'm living, I still enjoy hearing it. I, hear what they're, I enjoy hearing what they're doing and, and if they're doing it well. And I also like the uh, record albums, the uh, covers that you've been putting online. They <laughs> <laughs> have been I'm, very I'm interesting. I was doing, yeah, I started a thread there on bad album covers, and I think I'm going to have to pick that up again after the first of the year. Because, I mean, there's, when I get off on a subject like that, I just like to, I don't know, go to the bottom of the rabbit hole. And there are so many funny and or bad album covers. And I, I posted about the, 
those two albums from uh, it turns out I believe they're from South Africa mm-hmm. and they consisted they consisted of a, ba- a bunch of really tepid cover versions of songs that were not done by the original artist and they had this really good looking blonde on the cover and I said it's clickbait they got me to look at the cover and I clicked the album and it's lousy but uh, you know it's, it's, it's interesting I learn things every day believe me I don't know what the practical value would be of some of that knowledge but I enjoy learning it just the same I enjoy knowing something that I didn't know before well the uh, program I'm doing for WMCK has basically been uh, me going out and finding old vinyl and I've been looking for it everywhere and the best place to find vinyl right now are thrift stores like Goodwill and Salvation Army Oh yeah, because these people I mean a lot of it is pristine condition because the kids don't know what to do with their parents or grandparents vinyl collection so they just they just give it away and some of the stuff that I found there was one the best of 1966 all the hits of 66 but they weren't performed by the original audience. Those are some of the most fun albums is when they try to imitate the original artist and they don't do a very good well, job. What was it? Uh, it was either Steve Lawrence or Robert Goulet doing What's New Pussycat. I mean, it's oh dear, like, really? I have somewhere in my vast vinyl collection in the basement, which has been in boxes for years, I, have, uh-huh. uh, I think it's Bobby Rydell sings the top hits of 1963, including songs that he had nothing to do with but he sings them anyway and some of them are very entertaining let me tell you I'm sure Um, they are I'm sure they really are there's an incredible amount of music out there on vinyl that is still not available on CD and some of it's not available online and uh, it's I think I have this theory as I always like to say sooner or later everything will be on the internet and it's getting that way it's getting that way where you know they're going to find the the lost third reel of the Magnificent Ambersons that Orson Welles uh, didn't shoot they're going to find that on the internet somewhere somebody's going to put it up because it's, it's out there somewhere. So it's interesting to me. And the Internet, well, of course, Roger Ebert, I think it was Roger Ebert, once said that the, the Internet is like researching in a library that is vandalized nightly. And there's some truth There's some truth to that because they put up pages and then, you know, the pages are gone and right. they disappear. They change their URL when they can't find them. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, it's a, remarkable, it's a remarkable treasure trove of information. And just access to different things, access to radio stations streaming online, access to knowledge, uh, places like the Internet Archive, uh, where they just post everything and anything they can do that's public domain and it's it's interesting to see uh and the, the internet archive in particular seems to be how can i say it knowledge for knowledge's sake and they they digitize this stuff and they put it up and i i, I laugh it up like a dog and the last thing i want to ask you for before i let you go the whole thing with your interest in dumont where did that come from that started with my mother and when I was very young, and she told me stories of watching the Dumont Network on WDTV, Channel 3 in Pittsburgh, which later became KDKA-TV on Channel 2, and it intrigued me. Uh, it intrigued me for a while, and then when I got into radio and got full-time, I started looking into it, and somewhere somewhere in the early 1980s, I started doing research, and of course, back then, there really wasn't an internet, and uh, what I, I remember getting my first Dumont program on a ratty old VHS tape in 1985, okay. an episode, of, episode of the Cavalcade of Stars with Jackie Gleason, and uh, it was the only Dumont show that I had access to at the time, and I popped it in and watched it, and I was just transfixed. Here's, a, here's an old kinescope recording from 1951, and I'm watching it 30-some years later, uh, and it was fascinating because I'd never seen anything from the Dumont Network. I'm at the point now where I personally have over 100 Dumont shows, and that's not bad considering that the UCLA archives, I think, have about 300 total. Oh, wow. Uh, it's very hard to get copies of some of those shows. Most of the Dumont kinescopes were destroyed. They, uh, at some point, uh, after Dumont folded, uh, a lawyer apparently dumped them in the uh, in the Hudson Bay in New York City. Oh. <laughs> They're at the bottom of the uh, bottom of the river. Uh, but enough shows have survived that most of the major shows have at least one episode that exists. Okay. And you can watch them, and a lot of them are online. Uh, in fact, on my website, which is DumontNetwork.com, free plug. Uh, <laughs> you can uh, you can uh, go to the links page, and you can just watch them. I've got links to every one that's on YouTube or Internet Archive, and you can just watch it for yourself. Right. Uh, there, was a, there was a time where I had that links page really consisted of a bunch of people that were selling Dumont videotapes, and now it's just, hey, go click on this and watch. Uh, that's, the, again, the advantage of the Internet. So that's where my interest started. It started, uh, and, and it's evolved into three different websites I have now, one on the history of Dumont, one on the history of UHF television, and another one called TV Time Tunnel, which is basically just a big collection of images of television 
television stations, station identification slides, and TV towers, and buildings, and anything that happens to capture my fancy. It's it's uh, it's subjective, but it's it's what I find. I I find it, I process, it, and I put it up there. And all three of these websites. Here comes another free plug. All three of these websites can be accessed at historictelevision.com. That's historictelevision.com. <laughs> you'll see the you'll see the uh, you'll see the three links to the websites, and you can click on them and check the websites. You can even check the images independently. And uh, I just I throw stuff up there, and I'm constantly throwing material up there. I have about 1,200 more images to go to those three websites that oh, I'm wow. still processing. So it's just there's there's something like 8,000 pictures up there on the three websites. Uh, they're not all on the websites, but they're all in the images folder. So you can okay. look at them. So I just I'm just I'm just putting it up there as I find it, and uh, it's not really a it's not really a professional research project. It's more like, hey, I found it, and I'm uploading it. What, what I think is interesting, especially with the UHF, because I teach uh, kids between the ages of 14 and 18, and, and it is, it's media communications, mainly dealing with TV and a little bit of radio, and they just don't understand that what was going on in the early days of TV, because in their mind, history began the day they were born. And that's true of that's true of most people. Uh, uh, and it's interesting because UHF, with with the advent of digital television, uh, digital television works better on UHF than VHF. Oh, really? I didn't and, know that. And, they, they do. Uh, if, you, if you have a VHF channel, there's a couple of stations that have kept their VHF channels for digital television. Uh, channel 6 in Philadelphia is one. Channel 8 in Lancaster is another. And for whatever reason, it's the technical details, uh, VHF just does not propagate digital television as well as UHF does. And I thought to myself, it's 1953 in reverse. <laughs> now, you, now you can't get the VHF station. So what's happening is, is a lot of the stations that are still using VHF channels are applying for UHF repeaters in very parts of the market so they can cover the market better and I just kind of my head it's karma it's 50 years too late but it's, it's 60 years but it's, it's karma it's just interesting to me what and on the UHF on the UHF television website, which is UHFtelevision.com, you can look and see. We've written a bunch of articles. Uh, me and my content provider is a fellow uh, content coordinator. Uh, his name is K.M. Richards. And we've written articles about UHF stations that went dark. One of my favorites is WHUM-TV in Reading, Pennsylvania, which had the misfortune of trying to operate on Channel 61 in 1953. Um, this is a rather high channel. The technology really wasn't perfected yet. They ran the highest power that they could get at the time, which was 260. 61 kilowatts into a thousand foot tower that was on top of a mountain and they still folded uh they did just they had a full-time cbs affiliation they did just about everything right i think that they could have done technically speaking and they still went under after about three years oh wow it's tough. It was UHF was a very tough thing, especially if you were in the in the in the shadow of a VHF station. And Reading was about forty miles from Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia three three Philadelphia VHF stations got in there very well. Uh, that the UHF stations in town both folded. They just couldn't couldn't deal with the competition after a while. The the, the one thing I found interesting is that the networks actually would allow their content to be on a UHF station, since the VHF had control in most of the markets. Well, what happened in a place like Philadelphia is that uh, Channel 61, which was a CBS, I'm sorry, in, in Reading, uh, the CBS affiliate got signed very early. Okay. At that time, at that time, Channel 6 in Philadelphia didn't have a huge signal. They had not yet gone up on Roxborough, which is the big tower farm. So they felt that the the UHF station in Reading would serve a purpose. Uh, but in a lot of markets, as UHF went forward, it was obvious that UHF was having problems, and the VHF stations increased their coverage areas. Uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, for example, which was an all-UHF market, you had Channel 51, which was NBC, but it was very low power. It was like 8 kilowatts, I think. You had Channel 57, which was the ABC and Dumont affiliate, and they were 100 kilowatts, which was not bad for 1953. Um, and then you had uh, a, a construction permit for Channel uh, 39, which at that time was a commercial station, and they, they were trying to get the CBS affiliation, and WCAU-TV in Philadelphia on Channel 10 would not let them have the affiliation, okay. because uh, they, they went up, uh, they went, WCAU-FM went up on the big tower farm in 1954, and they contended, I think correctly, that they covered Allentown and Bethlehem from Philadelphia just fine. They didn't want another CBS affiliate in the market. And what eventually 
happened is that uh, the three VHF stations in Philadelphia, 3, 6, and 10, all went up on the Roxborough Tower Farm. They did cover Allentown, Bethlehem, the Lehigh Valley just swell. And all the UHF stations in Allentown and Bethlehem went dark. Uh, that was repeated in a lot of markets that were within the range of a VHF station. If you were out in some place like Fort Wayne, Indiana, or uh, some Youngstown, some market that didn't have VHF service, you were good. But if you were in the shadow of a VHF market like that, uh, a lot of UHF stations folded in the 50s. Interesting. And I, I again, I knew you were interested in it, and I wish I would have... Uh, Actually, I wish I would, we would have talked about it more. We're going to have to do this again because I have a lot more questions to ask you concerning this. <laughs> we can certainly do it again, and I'll be, I've become kind of an amateur expert on, on UHF and Dumont, whatever, so I'll be happy to do it again. That, and, uh, that is maybe, awesome. It'll be fun. Because there are some questions that I have because I've always wondered about them, especially the ones I'm familiar about are the ones that were in Pittsburgh because you had 22, you had 53, and then 40 came along, and then 21 was out of Ohio. Yeah. And I could I could go through because where I grew up, I grew up in Butler County. I grew up um, I grew up in Mars of all places, and where we were at, we were getting a lot of these station. Even the one that was coming in and from out of I guess it was Altoona, which was amazing to me that we were getting the signal that far. Yeah, if they were they were high enough. The Altoona station was probably up on Wapsononic Mountain, and that thing goes like a shot. Right. Uh, but if you go back to the early days of UHF television in Pittsburgh, and I'll, I'll give you a real quick version. Yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, uh, you had you had two UHF stations in the early days in the fifties. You had uh, WKJF TV channel fifty three, okay. and they they did not last long. They survived about a year, and they went dark. Later on, the, the very same construction permit, the off air station, was sold and became WPGH. Uh, then you had WENS Channel 16, and they were commercial. They were an ABC affiliate, and they ran some CBS shows. And again, this is a station that did just about everything right that they could do. They had live local shows. They had a tower on the north side, very close to where Channel 2 is now. Uh, they ran, I think, uh, 200 kilowatts, and it was a low channel. And they again, they still failed. They went, uh, they went about four years spending most of that time trying to get one of the VHF channels, 4 or 11. They tried to get 9, moved in from Steubenville, didn't okay. succeed. Uh, and finally, they were challenging the Channel 11 license, and finally, or the, the grant, because it hadn't been licensed yet. And finally, the Channel 11 people just paid them to go away. Oh, really? <laughs> they said, go away, go dark, we'll buy, we'll buy your land, we'll pay you X amount of dollars for your expenses, and they, they signed it off, and then eventually... Uh, Channel 16 was resurrected as a non-commercial uh, WQEX. And the funny part of that is the WQEX used the old WENS black and white transmitter from 1953 for the next 30-odd years. Wow. I think it went dark in 1985 when they couldn't, uh, they couldn't fix the transmitter anymore. And then they came back, <laughs> in, eight, came back in 86 with a brand-new color transmitter. Uh, but they, they ran that old fuzzy black and white thing for, for three decades. So, uh, and you, had, you also had one other station that was never built. It was on Channel 47, WTVQ. And uh, I suspect the owners of that station or the construction permit looked at what was happening with 16 and 53, said, we don't want any part of this, and decided not to build the thing. So with, um, with QEX, why did, why did QED want the station? I mean, it was so close to 13 and 16, and a lot of times it duplicated its own programming, didn't it? Well, it did, certainly in the later years. They were 100% simulcast. But uh, what WQED wanted was a station to run, like, in-classroom programs. Okay. And uh, they originally applied for Channel 47, which had that construction permit that was never built. But uh, they, they wouldn't sell them the construction permit. Then they applied to the FCC to have Channel 22 move north from Clarksburg, West Virginia, which is where it was allocated. There was nobody on the channel. And it was moved. And uh, then WENS entered into this deal with WQED to sell them their equipment, or most of it. And QED took Channel 16, and the WENS construction permit was reassigned to Channel 22, but it never came back on the air. Okay. WENS apparently hung onto that construction permit until like 1970 or 1971, wow. but they never built it. And then eventually, of course, WPTT came on. But uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why QED ended up with Channel 16. And okay. originally, it was a lot of in-service, you know, a lot of in-classroom in programming, and then eventually it became an independent station of its own. Okay. Now, another question I have for you, because I I was always told this, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I think you might know, 
that when they started allocating um, TV stations, they were actually giving them to radio stations that had AM/FM combinations or dual licenses. Is that true? Well, there were a lot of cases where the the radio stations applied for television stations. Okay. Uh, this was a problem for Dumont because not only was Dumont in trouble with Paramount because they both owned stations and Paramount had part of Dumont. The FCC said, sorry, they count together. You can't apply for any more stations. Okay. But uh, du Dumont had no radio network, so they didn't have the pool of talent to draw from, and they didn't have the radio stations to apply for TV stations. Uh, the FCC pretty much allocated stations as they, as they fit into the markets, uh, and then it was a question of who applied for them and who would win the license. And that was always a comparative hearing process, unless there was only one applicant. Okay. So they, did, they didn't specifically give them to the radio and TV stations, but a lot of radio and TV stations got them. Because I believe there was radio, one, I'm sorry, AM, FM radio. I believe that there was one allocated to WJPA in Washington. And that's there what, was it. There was a channel assigned to Washington, PA, and I think it was channel 63. Okay. And that never got on the air. Um, and as far as I know, nobody even applied for it. But because, uh, well, again, a, a UHF station in the suburbs of Pittsburgh in that day and age wouldn't have stood a chance. But, right. Uh, nobody really knew that until about a year in. I mean, 1953 was a big year for UHF stations, and then in 1954 they all started going dark uh, because they couldn't compete with the the DHF stations. So uh, I think a state, and there were allocations in Butler and other places as okay. well around Pittsburgh. And yeah, that's they, they they wouldn't have survived. And I think they a lot of people that didn't build made the right decision. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that that's very interesting. And next time we do this, that's all we're going to talk about because now you stay tuned for part two. Yeah, we'll we'll do it. We'll we'll do a we'll do a second second half of the show, and uh, we'll talk about television and UHF and Dumont, whatever else you want to talk about. That sounds like fun, Clark. I really appreciate it. It's been quite a while since you and I have talked, and then honestly, it felt like we left off where we started. So I appreciate that. I've had that in a lot of cases. I just heard from a radio friend of mine I hadn't heard from in three years, and it was like we'd never been gone. So it's always fun to pick up the conversation. I look forward to the next time. Clark, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining me, and we will talk to you real soon. Take care, Bill. God Thank bless you. Thank God you. bless you, too. Clark Ingram here on Online with yours truly, Bill Alexander, here on YouTube and also on Fayette TV Channel 77. That was great. Um, I knew he was interested in TV with the UHF and Dumont, but for some reason it, it didn't click how involved he was. And we're going to be talking about that next time when Clark joins us. But next week, um, at the same time, Yours truly is going to be talking to former WTAE anchor Sally Wigan as she joins me here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander, here on YouTube and also on Fayette TV, Channel 77. Everybody, you have a great night. And also, I would like to wish everybody a happy new year since we'll be coming into 2019 here next week. So we'll talk to you next time in 2019 here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Everybody have a great night. We'll talk to you next time. I'm tired and I gotta go home. I'm tired and I gotta go home. My baby told me she's gonna set me free. If I don't hurry back home, so I better be on my way. You know I cannot stay. It's been nice, you know, but I got to go. Yes, I gotta go home. I left my baby about free. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. If you've ever been a renter... You know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot.